Welcome to Chamber Breakers, presented by Verizon Business and Yahoo Finance. I'm Leanna Brindard, a director at Yahoo. And I'm Xavier White, CSR and Innovation Marketing Manager at Verizon Business. During this series, Leanna and I will be inviting thought leaders to break the echo chambers surrounding key societal issues. For the third season, we're unpacking capitalism, whether it's broken and what we can do as businesses to pave a more equitable future for all. We're delighted to welcome Dr. Ayanna Howard, Dean of the College of Engineering at Ohio State University. Dr. Howard is also the founder of the non-profit Zyrobotics that develops mobile therapy and educational products for children with special needs. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited about this conversation. Absolutely. We're so excited to have you here. And I know we've got a very meaty topic. Not only are we unpacking capitalism, but we're talking about AI and robotics. So I suppose all the cool things that everyone's talking about right now. But um, so, as you know, we're here to unpack whether capitalism is broken, but of course, how technology plays a part of it. Um, and especially a fundamental part of our systemic structure, especially for the future. So to set the scene, how would you see AI and robotics feeding into this current system and into this conversation? Well, so one of the things is when you think about AI, and I'll just use AI loosely to cover AI and robotics, um, AI is an enabler. So I actually think that when AI is done right, it actually levels the playing field. And so things like equality, equity is much more attainable if we do artificial intelligence and implement it right. So it is part of the conversation because it is emerging. It's continuing to grow in a bunch of different applications. How did you get into AI and robotics? What was it that made you want to be where you are today and talk about this kind of thing? Well, okay. So when I was a little girl back in the day, uh, like most little girls, I had a fantasy and mine was I wanted to build a bionic woman. Um, and the reason is because I was always into like science fiction and science fantasy. And I remember watching the bionic woman and this is like not the, the one that they released many, many years ago, but this is back in the, the 70s, 80s. And I was just fascinated that you can use technology to save the world in like a human body. And so that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to build a bionic woman. And so that's where I started in this world of robotics, but I love making robots intelligent. And so that's where this whole aspect of AI and, and making robots intelligent came from. That's very cool. So interestingly, actually, I told my teachers when I was at school, I wanted to build the first artificial human body because I'd also seen a sci-fi TV show where they did that. So very relatable. See? But I love that, you know, when, when it's been a focus area that you've really felt passionate about, it's about changing the world, using technology to do that. And, you know, especially since you've had such an incredible career, and I'd love you to talk about everything from NASA to where you are now, um, just so if the audience doesn't know, really, really should know, because you've got an incredible CV. But from that moment where you got inspired, that technology and especially AI could be implemented as building a better future did you have any idea that it would lead you to where you are and what your focus has been in terms of ai and robotics oh of course not i had no clue you know as a 12 13 year old you have no clue where your world is going to lead or what's going to happen um so it's just it was just one step at a time i remember my very first job was working as a, a database administrator for caltech and it was because computers were just starting to be adopted in the financial industry. And I knew how to program. 
And so they were like, oh, here's this hotshot kid that knows about this stuff called programming. I think we need one of those. Can you come here? Right? And, and that's when I got to Caltech. It was Caltech manages JPL, NASA Center. And so that's how it was like, oh, you like robotics. I have a manager. He would love you. Why don't I introduce you? So I had no idea, no clue of where my path would lead. And looking into that, I mean, where your path is now, where is that moment or was there like either a light bulb moment or a certain, um, you know, day or month where you were like, wow, this is the area that I really want to concentrate on. And especially when it comes to uh, the research that you've been doing in terms of where AI and robotics can be in the right hands, used for good or could be at the same time not being used in the way that it could be done. Yeah, so my, my first, I would say, real world project that I understood this value of robotics working with people. And that's really, if you look at what I'm interested in, it really is, is that robots and AI enhance our quality of life. Um, and where that happened was my, my very first uh, technical manager job, I just received my PhD, 27, I was in charge of this team, and we had to think about future Mars rover missions. And I remember thinking about like, well, how are we supposed to do this? You know, we had landed on Mars, but we hadn't done long range traversal. And so I thought, you know what? Those scientists, they know what they're doing and they want science. And so very early on, I started talking to scientists like, oh, how do you navigate? How do you discover science? What do you do? And I realized if I could take what they knew and figure out how to transplant that knowledge onto the rovers, then that would really be the key of creating a, a next generation. Um, and so that's when I realized that there's a power when you blend in the expertise of people with the expertise of robots to really enhance something. So that was really the aha moment. And from there, like everything I do now looks at the human as an integral part of the system. That's awesome. That's very cool. And uh, kind of thinking on, on that lines about how, you know, putting the human in the center and the way that what you're doing is thinking about what can do some good. So, you know, we, we talk about AI and robotics and, and being used as a force for good and and things like that. But do you think in doing it, we actually, where you said about putting the human in it, obviously humans are inherently flawed. We, we come with biases. We come with prejudices that were taught to us. Do you think there's almost a, a little bit of a, a conflict there? Do you think that in doing some good, we are perpetuating more things that have those biases that do discriminate? And are, are there issues about that, whether they're, you know, the diversity issues, whether there's anything sort of capitalistic issue-wise? What's the conflict? What are the issues? Yeah, so there are issues. So uh, one of the things is because we are sort of relying on people and People, society has historical biases. If you look, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, like clearly some of us in this call would not be on this call. And so, you know, I think about how we have these historical biases. And if we are using our data to teach AI, of course, AI is going to be biased and it's going to have these issues. But one of the nice things about um, AI is that it's better than us because what it allows us to do is integrate our our values as well as our biases because a lot of people you know you shouldn't hate you should love your fellow person we kind of all believe that and yet we still discriminate and, and so 
again, what I mentioned before, if we do AI right, it, it actually helps. And if you look at all the examples of AI having bias, so AI being used in healthcare, there's biases against certain groups. We know this. But then if you compare them to the group of people that made these decisions, they're like, oh, you know what? Give me the AI anytime. I'm much more likely to survive versus a group of individuals that would not care about me, would not look at me, would basically label me because of the way I look. But I want AI to be perfect, honestly. And so we still have a long way to go for it to really be perfect, but it's still better than groups of people that have biases, unfortunately. Well, you've gone into depth um, about this very much in your um, book that you've written about um, called Sex, Race and Robots, about racial and sexual bias in AI. Would love you to elaborate on some of that and some um, and, you know, expand on something that you've just said a moment ago, um, especially um, on this topic. Yeah. So a few years ago, I would say maybe about eight years ago, I started getting a little worried because I was starting to see like the signs of AI being adopted by the world and companies. And, you know, I thought, you know, they're not thinking about some of the issues because I was starting to look at bias and overtrust. I was like, there's no conversation on this. Like people are just deploying this and not realizing that there might be some issues here. And because of that, just looking at what this is, the book really talks about all these biases that are out there. One, discovering of why, because a lot of people I don't think understand why. They're like, oh, these companies, they're, they're putting out this racist algorithm. And there's actually a history of why this even happened. And so I, one, try to give a much more understanding to the general public about why, but also provide some tools of ways to mitigate, whether you are a developer or you're a user or even you're a company. Like there are ways that we can fix this before it becomes a really, really, really big issue. So you mentioned that sort of AI biases and, you know, lots of people have heard of different things, but I wanted, could you just share some examples of that, ones that you think are particularly poignant perhaps? Yeah, so um, one example, and I mentioned AI for healthcare. Uh, so there was a study, I'm thinking it may have been about two years ago, that they were looking at the system that basically recommend services for individuals as follow-up. And what they found later on was that these services were uh, negatively impacting Black women. They were less likely to recommend the services to help that if they were Black than not. Um, and they looked at it, and it was because the AI one was trained on historic data. It also looked at costs associated with individuals and groups. And so at the end, they were like, yeah, we are not going to recommend services for this group. And it happened to be related to race. So that's an example of a system that had biases that actually impact people's lives. Uh, we also see this in loan applications where uh, there is a higher with respect to gender. Uh, more likely than not, uh, a gender is going to be a factor in some algorithms for either the rates of the loan or the approval. Um, and, you know, I always laugh because did you know back in the day, women couldn't get credit cards if they unless they were married or had a male co-signer? And we're not talking like back in the day, like 1900s. And, and so if you think about it, these are some of the practices that you just don't even think that could seep their way into some of the algorithms. Well, when you talk about seeping its way through the algorithms and we bring it back to like where that comes from and people, is that I know we can get deeper and deeper into this. So apologies if we're going down the rabbit hole on this one. But I'd love to get an understanding of how we can start um, 
no, we can never remove biases, but we can train people to be more aware. However, especially over the last um, two or three years, there's been a lot of research into training unconscious bias and especially when it comes to the people level and making those things mandatory for example seem to sometimes counteract the intention of trying to educate people more so when it comes to human level when it comes to developers when it comes to people that are maybe at the top who are predominantly cis white men how do you start educating on these biases to make sure it doesn't start seeping into the system what can be done about it planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yeah, so, you know, I have my opinion about uh, trainings. And one of the things that we know, and this is both in my research as well as in others' research, is that you have to provide, I would call, low-hanging fruit to remove the barriers when you're doing the job. As an example, uh, there was a study by a different group that was talking about uh, biases in the hate hate speech detection algorithms. And what they found is, is that the coders, because human coders actually do the labeling so that the AI systems can be trained. And they found that when there was no priming, so basically, hey, label this, that uh, individuals were more likely to label text from Black Twitter, for example, uh, as toxic, more so than not. But if they were prime, like, look, we're just letting you know that this, this corpus of data is from Black Twitter, they were less likely to be biased, which meant that the resulting hate detection algorithm was less biased across groups. So that's an example of taking something around implicit bias and saying, okay, we're going to codify this so it's useful for this job versus, a, oh, everyone has implicit bias, you should take some time, very general things, which I think people don't know how to then take it and put it into their jobs or develop an algorithm based on much more of this generic general understanding of implicit bias. I'd love to unpack that a little bit more as well, just because when we talk about the low hanging fruit, and that sounds like a practical step, we know that when it comes to detecting um, bias within systems, that Sometimes it's very hard to, especially for me, as someone who isn't a coder and isn't a developer, like trying to explain the nuance um, behind like some things that we may read or see that doesn't get detected and maybe nuance in that sexism or racism within that language. Do you feel that there is an ability that eventually AI and the use of AI and robotics to detect that um, across platforms? will be advanced enough to be able to um, detect more nuanced, again, sexist, racist, homophobic language or practices that may not be smoking gun or as explicit in order to code? I think so. Um, and one of the things is that these systems have to be adaptive because we're not going to get it right all the time. 
we all have biases, you know, even if you are from an underrepresented group, you have biases just because of your lived experience. Um, I am less likely to understand what it's like to be in a lower social economic, just because where I am now, I will have a bias, not because I'm biased or prejudiced against individuals. It's just because this is my framing and lived experience. And so I think AI can do this, but it has to be adaptive. And, you know, my perfect solution would be, um, imagine if you were, you were typing in something and it knew your identity and it'd be like, you know, that word, it, it's showing you a little bias against this certain group. Individuals would be like, oh, I didn't even think about that. You're right. If I read it that way, that's what, you are so right. Let me rephrase it. I think most of us, if someone calls us out in that instance of time, are much more likely to be reflective and learn how to train ourselves. And I think AI can do that. That's an interesting, almost symbiotic example. And I quite like that. And, and while we're thinking of, of solutions and, you know, on this podcast, we do we joke, joke, we try and fix the world. So whilst we're trying to fix the world, um, looking at it from a responsibility of businesses, you've given examples of, I guess, what certain companies or certain platforms, we can all imagine platforms that could apply to. But in... A lot of our listeners work in business in all different sort of areas. So thinking from a, a more business perspective, what is there that they could do to try and remove bias, whether it's in data sets or are there any examples of good practice that you've heard that you think if only all companies that dealt with AI or data in any capacity could could follow? Yeah, so there's uh, two examples, uh, kind of tranches of examples, I think are really good and promising. So one is companies should really start committing to what I would call third-party auditors with respect to bias. So think about this. There are companies that give bounties for finding security bugs, right? And, and people out there, they go, they try to find it, and companies will pay them. And what happens? A company now, they have these people that are different, they're diverse, and they have better products because of that. Why aren't companies doing this with respect to bias? Like, okay, if we want you to find the bias and when you find it and report it to us, we will give you a bounty, a, you know, a bias bounty. Like this means diverse people from different parts of the world will be like, oh, I think that's a lovely idea. Um, I've only seen it done in like little areas so far. I, I, one company just did it around um, tweets, basically a bounty kind of program. I think that's an excellent idea. And it follows what they're doing already. The other is, is when you're putting together your teams, you have to be very intentional on making sure that your team is diverse. And it's not just diverse with respect to, you know, race, ethnicity, language, nationality, gender, but also with respect to your experience. You know, I'm an engineer computer scientist, but frankly, we also need some ethicists and some social scientists and some designers on the team, not after the fact, like part of the team that are like, hey, maybe you should think about it this way versus an after the fact, after it's done, then you review it and analyze it. And so that's the other area that I've seen a little bit of movement in that seems hopeful. Well, we've talked about right um, in a way almost at the end of the um, project life cycle, just like you said about detecting. But when we go right back to the beginning, it in a way, that when things are in the infancy, because as we know, AI robotics, the speed of development, and especially now society is going so fast, that even at the moment, um, there are people in university 
that are working towards and learning things for jobs that probably don't even exist yet, which is an incredible situation and society to be in. But do you think even with that um, in mind that they could be working towards these uh, roles that maybe won't exist in sometimes like 10 years time, that there are practices and ways that we can embed in education to train students um, to not only consider or detect biases within their work and their education, but also at the same time embedding diversity and that kind of extra lens training that only corporates are getting to grips with now, um, but actually within our education system. I think so. I think one of the things, if you think about education, is thinking about adding elements of ethics, social justice, understanding the, the global needs um, and responsibility of you know, engineer computer scientists to really impact the world. I think it can start not just in college, but as early as kindergarten, you know, teaching some of these elements and concepts around artificial intelligence and computer science and engineering. Um, I think when we start that, it's a long process though, right? If you start in kindergarten and they go through college, you're talking like 20 years of this continuous dripping of a difference of mindset. I think it's one way that we can really enhance the world for, for the later. It's not the immediate because, you know, if we train the seniors in college today, they're going to go out and they're going to be in this world that's not necessarily trained. But over the long period, I think it can be done, but it requires us to rethink how we're doing education, rethink how we're talking about social justice within the educational system as we're talking about engineering and computer science. It's a challenge. Talking about the system as a whole, as you, you just have, and thinking about how AI can enhance people's lives, when looking holistically and considering the impact of business, education, and all other institutions, where do you see the power sitting and how can we harness this to ensure that AI and robotics are used correctly for the future? So I think one of the things is as AI is adopted and really is, again, seeps into our activities, our applications, thinking about it holistically as companies, one is that the customer is not a customer. They need to be a partner. So that's one thing. Also thinking about there's a number of advocacy groups. They also need to be partners. They may not be users, but they're also the ones that can help companies think about the social impact, think about the possibly negatives, but also the positive benefits in this aspect. And again, I think the holistic aspect is companies need to invest in education. They can't expect not to and then try to achieve all the benefits of, you know, doing good with AI, but they have to invest in education with a focus on ensuring that there is responsibility and there's ethics that are weaved into the curriculum. But companies need to sponsor that and support that as well. I think one of the things that's so important about this as well, when we talk about power and how we can make a change is the importance of representation. You've mentioned in the boardrooms, mentioned about partnering with the consumer and all this, but how important is it to have that representation of diversity within the decision-making table? I know that in talks and papers that you've done before, you've mentioned um, that you've been the first or only woman of color or black woman in the room. Um, so, it would also be good to get some understanding as well of that lived experience of 
any challenges that you faced within your industry, but how important it is to be able to represent, but also empower in order to navigate these challenges, especially when it comes to AI and robotics and this very, very speedily evolving industry. So I think diversity is extremely important and there's two reasons. Uh, one is that if you're a company and you're producing a product for the world, the world is diverse. I mean, it's what makes us beautiful as humans and, and people. And so if your company does not look like the world, how can you expect to have a competitive advantage if you're creating products for people you don't understand, right? And so that's just, it's just good business because you're now, if you have a diverse set of employees, you are now thinking about the fact you want to sell to a diverse group of individuals, which is the world population. The other is, is that if you do not have a diverse set of employees, you are more likely than not all going to go down the same cliff, right? Because what happens is when you have a different lived experience, it's that person who's like, you know what? I've been here before and there's a cliff on the other side, right? Whereas if you haven't, they're all going there. And then of course, one person will be surviving. But again, what that thought is and the difference of lived experience is that they can help course correct. When everyone thinks the same, when everyone has the same lived experience, you just don't see other things. But when you bring in individuals that have a difference of thinking and different thought process, they're just going to talk about like, hey, well, this is what I see it, or this is how I see it. This is my lens. This is my perception. And what happens is you see this time and time again, is that they, then the group itself goes, oh, I hadn't thought about that. And then they start rethinking and, oh, that's an interesting perspective. Oh, you're right. Um, and so it's one of the best things. I've seen this in brainstorming sessions all the time where everyone's going down the same path. And someone will say just one little thing and it changes the entire direction. And then you come up with a better solution, which is also good for businesses. Again, your customers, you want to represent your customers and sell to the world. And two, you want to ensure that you don't basically become a defunct business in 10 to 20 years because you can put in that diverse thinking, diverse processes, diverse employees in your in your data set, basically. Yeah, and I, I suppose I'm, I'm curious about that from the flip side too. So, you know, obviously we know there's a lot of research around diversity being proportional to innovation, innovation being, proportion, innovation being proportional to profit. So, you know, diversity is literally profit, as you say, like why, why wouldn't you? Um, but when thinking about diverse candidates and their, their barriers to entry, the different access problems that different communities face. Do you think AI is going to start to level the playing field or do you think that it might cause a loss to jobs that would disproportionately harm certain communities? And then within that, humans and AI, how, how do you see us sort of working together to avoid that kind of thing? Um, so AI does have the potential to create more of a divide. Uh, but I also think it has uh, the potential of making it more equal. And why I say this, so I remember, you know, back in the day when the internet started to become pervasive and there was all this conversation about the digital divide. Oh, you're going to have a digital divide. You're going to have the have and have nots. And as you know, today, this connectedness, this internet, this aspect of, you know, computers on a smartphone has really enabled the, the world to, to kind of expand. And so places that basically had no resources now have access. So that was what technology did. And I remember the same conversations around back then about the digital divide we're having about AI. And that did not happen, but people were intentional, right? There was a lot of efforts. There was a lot of kind of understanding. There was a lot of nonprofits that started about, okay, 
you know, in the United States, it was like, you know, a laptop for every child. So there was an effort to, to make sure that didn't happen. And so that's why I say the now is if we are intentional about ensuring that everyone has equal access, I think it will create a much more equitable place in the future, but we have to be intentional. Otherwise, it, it will happen. Especially talking about nonprofits and being intentional. Can you talk a bit about Zyrobotics uh, before we go? Yeah, so Zyrobotics was created to design uh, tools, uh, basically STEM games, education, as well as therapy for children with diverse abilities, uh, primarily children with special needs. Um, and the reason was because when I was working in this space, pediatric robotics, what I saw was that a lot of the tools that were out there that were put out by companies just basically forgot that there was a whole demographic of children who, who the software, who the tools were not designed for. Whether it was a child with a visual impairment, child with a motor impairment, a child with sensory processing disorder, it wasn't. Um, and so how do you create a product from day zero with these thoughts of access and make it so that it's also engaging so that every child would want to interact and engage. And what we found was iRobotics. Um, all of our apps, of course, right now are free as a nonprofit. But what we find is, is that not only does it address the needs of children with special needs, but it also addresses the advanced student who, whose mom or dad wants them to learn how to program at the age of four because we designed everything that we have created based on this concept of access and that every person needs maybe a different way of accessing information on a computer or interacting with it or engaging with it. Um, so it's actually had a twofold. It's one, it's addressed the needs of children with special needs, but it also has provided this ability for any child to get ahead even, which is kind of a nice, wasn't planning on that part, but that's kind of the, the outcome as well. That's, that's really awesome. And almost a sort of real world metaphor for what you were just saying in the previous question about about AI and, and the benefits. Well, before we go, where can people find you if people are curious to, to perhaps follow you, um, find out more about your projects that you've mentioned, check out Zyrobotics? Yeah, where can they find you? Yeah, so the easiest, just follow me um, on Twitter at RobotSmarts. Uh, I tend to post quite a bit, just everything from the information about bias and AI and tools to empower, as well as even educational, like here's a free X, you know, check it out and see what's on and available. Uh, so that's the best way at Robot Smarts. Thank you so much. It's been such an amazing conversation and uh, really thank you for being here today with us. Thank you. And thank you everyone who's been watching or listening. So of course, this is brought to you by Yahoo Finance and Verizon Business. And if you're watching or listening on podcast, don't forget that um, to like, subscribe, follow all of it if you loved it. And check us out on yahoofinance.com um, as well for more information on this subject.